Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Rick Jackson, senior reporter and a host for IdeaStream. It is September 30th. You're with a virtual City Club forum. For the last few months, it has felt as if the country and the world is both on fire and at a tipping point when it comes to confronting racism, police brutality, white supremacy. This chapter in our nation's history began the night that George Floyd was killed by police officers in Minneapolis. The Black Lives Matter protests that followed the deaths of George Floyd and others at the hands of police are now being compared in the media to the civil unrest of the 1960s. At that time, the national response to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., combined with the ongoing protest over civil rights and the Vietnam War, plunged this nation, already divided, more deeply into turmoil. Today, the national reckoning on race, the coronavirus pandemic, the climate crisis, and the looming presidential election threaten to divide the country in ways not seen in decades. How does this movement compare the civil rights movement of 1960s? Will these protests result in meaningful change? What lessons can we learn from the past? We'll ponder these and many other questions with an intergenerational and distinguished panel of individuals who've led the Cleveland branch of the NAACP over the last half century. Joining me today are Clarence Holmes, a retired attorney and past president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. He served during the 1960s and was instrumental in the creation of the United Freedom Movement. Also is the Reverend Stanley Miller, former executive director of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. He served in that role from 2005 through 2011. He's now pastor of Rust United Methodist Church in Lorain County. And Danielle Sidner, the current president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP, elected in February of 2019. He's also the founder and CEO of We Win Strategies Group. Clarence, Stanley, Danielle, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Good to have you all. The impact of the organization obviously has changed over the decades. Danielle Sidner, in the present climate that I've described, where do you see the most influence being brought by the NAACP today? I think the most influence from the NAACP today is serving as a convener. There are many organizations that are doing an amazing amount of work um, on the ground, in private offices, at the legislative level. And one of the unique things about our brand and our ability to really connect with other organizations is we're not out here trying to do it all by ourselves. We know that uh, we're only going to be able to accomplish this through partnership. And so we've been able to work with organizations like Black Lives Matter, with the Urban League, with New Voices, with SDLC, with National Action Network, and really just ensure that all um, facets of the civil rights movement in, in present day are covered. Clarence Holmes, the Cleveland branch, 108 years old. Without going too deep into history, share with our audience some of the successes the chapters achieved here and how that's impacted lives for Northeast Ohio residents of color. Well, one of the signal achievements uh, was uh, our effort when the mall was being built to get some black tradesmen included in uh, the uh, building of the of the mall. We also filed a lawsuit against the Cleveland. Department of Education, Board of Education rather, that resulted in a decree from Judge Battisti that theoretically, at least, integrated the educational system. But that didn't last because as far as I now know, the education uh, of the Cleveland school system is as segregated now as it ever was. Reverend Miller, I know you think that many of the accomplishments that have happened earlier could have happened even earlier than that, were America not predisposed to look at men and women of color as lesser than historically. How much of that history impacts the lives being lived by African Americans in 2020? I think that's a, a great point, and I, I see that it impacts everything that happens in our society today. It's jobs, it's education, it's the availability of technology. I think we haven't recognized the role that African-Americans have played in the development of this country and the history of the world. And I think we've given ourselves, uh, not given ourselves the opportunity to, to demonstrate what we can do. 
Uh, I'm really happy to hear about what's happened in the past and really what's happening in the future with um, with the NAACP. But we're in a period now where it's going to take all hands on deck to make a difference in our society. And uh, I'm just hoping that we can reinvigorate the church community and reinvigorate younger people to come up into the movement so we can keep some of this activity going. Are you at all discouraged that we haven't been able to do that thus far? It is. It's frustrating because one thing is that we do something and then they kind of sit for a while and then it disappears. I was talking to a group a few weeks ago and we talked about the Glenville riots, the Huff riots and all that kind of thing. And people worried about it for a little bit. They thought about it for a couple of months. And then it seems to drop off the radar screen. We need some continuity of effort, some continuity of thought, some continuity of engagement on these kind of issues. And that's why institutions, and I really like what Ms. Sidor said, she's going to engage other organizations to work with them in the effort because the NAACP and organizations can't do it alone. They need to come together with others. Danielle, that history that he's speaking of, it impacts the young men and women of today, but I know you're all about a concentrated effort to develop next generational talent. If black youth are being held back by systems and circumstances now, then where is that talent to come? Danielle? We're not hearing you. Can we can now? hear you now. Yes. I was having some uh, audio issues. You can repeat okay. The question, um, the right? question was the history that Reverend Miller was talking about. It impacts young men and women of color today. But I know you're all about this concentration, concentrated effort to develop next generational talent. But if our black kids are being held back by systems and circumstances now, where does that talent originate? So I think the talent originates uh, in two places. One, it, I learned about activism, about advocacy came from my experiences in my household and in my family. I think the other place is we have social media and we have a lot of different tools now that uh, allow us to connect with people that we maybe ordinarily would not be in normal community with. And so when we're thinking about the ways that we can bring young people in, I think it takes for us as organizations and as leaders to go where young people are and we can continue to develop talent. I don't think that uh, talent development is something that's actually that challenging, but the intentionality to go after the individuals that we're looking to be in community with sometimes causes us to have to go out of our normal uh, pattern and tactics. And I think about TikTok and some of these other tools that have come around. I mean, you have kids that have millions of followers on TikToks that are doing short, quick videos. And so how are we as organizations tapping into the talent where it is and trying to learn their methodology uh, and their tactics? You're the only one of us on the panel that has kids right now. Would you want them to take the mantle or would you hope that by the time they're young adults, we've gained enough that the organization isn't as needed to advance causes? I think there's always going to be a need to have organizations that are at the helm of holding uh, this broader system accountable. I think that our government relies on us as members of the community to continue to ensure that it upholds its end of the bargain. However, Rick, I would hope that when my children are uh, my age and they're, they're not that far away from it, would be in a position to where they're not fighting the exact same battles. I was on another panel uh, earlier last week and I had 20 years ago talking about the exact same thing. So I want to see us in some sort of better progression that the battles that they are fighting are on a new level for different wins and we're not in this same circular fashion of trying to make the same progress. Clarence Holmes, how do we gather support for this new NAACP chapter led by somebody clearly of another generation? He's younger than the other three of us here. How do we teach new people the value of the organization? sustained effort uh, what we need to do is uh, try to enlist the younger generation to come up with some programs that they can uh, adopt and hope that as we go along that we don't lose our enthusiasm 
I think Reverend Miller made a, a cogent point in saying that we need sustained effort because we had a lot of enthusiasm back in the 60s, but it died down. And a lot of the people who were our allies, they went back to school. They took jobs with IBM and so forth. And they moved to the suburbs and they forgot all of the things that they had been advocating for. And now they are, <clears throat> pardon me, they are now well into adulthood and we don't hear from them anymore. So what we need to do is try, in addition to trying to enlist the younger generation, we also need to awaken the sleeping giant, which is, which are the adults who used to be youth. And I hope that, I hope, <clears throat> pardon me, I hope that the uh, enthusiasm will not wane and die down like it did from the 60s and 70s. Stanley, jump in there. How do you see us bringing back different leadership? And is there a different dynamic now with Danielle? Female leadership, different than the former leadership, mostly, mostly men. Well, it's interesting because um, when I became an executive director, I, I followed a woman that had been the executive director for years. And she was a great person. Actually, she's a, an attorney, became a judge, Pauline Tarver. So the NAACP in Cleveland have, has always had women in key positions that have helped the organization go forward. To go to Mr. Holmes's point though, there are some sleeping giants out there. I belong to an organization called Blacks in Management. It was an organization started back in the 60s, actually by corporate America because black executives, those first vice presidents that came into the greater Cleveland area, didn't belong to the clubs that the, the counterparts belong to. So this organization was started and those men and women are still around. And we meet periodically, we talk about what's going on, we introduce new executives into Cleveland, but there's still a place, their knowledge, their enthusiasm is still there, but we need to go back and bring those sleeping giants out of partial retirement and get them engaged in the life of what's going on and assist Danielle in the work that she's doing with the younger people today. I got to tell you, the, the role has shifted. My boys are in their 50, 40s and 50s, and I have these what-if minutes because they're not young boys anymore out in the street, but they're out in the community doing things, and I'm concerned that they may run into the wrong policeman with a bad attitude on a night where they've done nothing and end up in jail or something worse. So I think there's still work to do. Those sleeping giants are out there. We just need to tap them on the shoulder and say, get back into the game. And uh, we need to do that. And we need to support Danielle uh, Senor in making that happen. Well, President, um, it's good to have that support. We were talking before the meeting about the late representative John Lewis and the good trouble that he had people trying to get into. Is this a perfect time for the NAACP to motivate, to strike, to recruit, to introduce yourselves to this new cadre of potential supporters as we were talking civil rights and more? It absolutely is an opportunity for us to um, connect. One, one of the things that I am proud to be is a graduate of the NAACP National Association's Next Gen Leadership. In, introduced to the NAACP uh, some years ago, but there's a concerted effort from the national level to try and engage individuals aged 21 to 40 to get acclimated to branch involvement. Because one of the things that the association identified is individuals were active sometimes in their family and as, as a youth, and then they would get active at college, but they had a significant drop off after people graduated college and they didn't come back into the adult branches until they were NAACP young, which is like 50 years old. And so they, they're trying to grab those folks that are in that middle of that age range um, and I think the program is working well. This is the, we have our second class that's kind of happening right now. And you have leaders all across the country. I think the other important thing that Stanley talked about when you talk about this uh, sleeping giant is there was a more cohesive connectedness when we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have internet, 
how is it possible to get everybody to the March on Washington? Because even though we live separately, we were still connected through these organizations and institutions. Well, now I have friends that are on the ground in Minneapolis, the, the branch president there, the branch or uh, the conference president in Georgia. So because of this leadership program, I'm not just better connected with my local leaders. I'm now connected across the nation. Good point. Clarence, this will be the first election in 50 years that we haven't had the full protection of the right to vote for minority voters, something that your generation, your organization fought and in some cases died for. What are your concerns? Do you think we're going to see some impact there? I, I definitely do. I think that uh, one of the candidates for president is doing everything he can to suppress the vote. He's laying the foundation for uh, uh, an appeal or a protest if he loses. And I think that uh, we need more protection in terms in terms of the vote. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that his effort to denigrate the mail-in ballot is probably going to have some effect, and it may it may uh, influence people not to vote, not to send back their ballots, or it may influence people not to even request a ballot. But I hope that isn't the case. But we need to be vigilant, and we need to watch what's going on, and we need to talk up the right to vote and how important it is to vote in this election. If you never voted in a president election before now, and if you're otherwise eligible, we should all vote, 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 vote. Whatever, whatever method you choose, whether you, you do it in person or do it by mail, we should all do it. That is a message we, we continue to hear. Stanley, let me step away from civil rights for a second because we were talking about that loss of full protection. That was a Supreme Court decision. Now we have the possibility of another appointee who could likely not vote the way Justice Ginsburg would have. That's got to concern you. Yeah, it really does. I think that I, I support government and I support the Constitution, but the reality is that when we need people in positions that can make real decisions and not be linked to people that don't have the country's best interest at heart. I gotta tell you, my phone rang off the hook last evening following that debate. And people were just up in arms over what was happening and who's leading this country today. And as Mr. Holmes said, vote, vote, vote. You know, there are people out there that haven't voted since uh, Barack Obama ran for president. You know, that was a great opportunity. They went out and did it. But they don't realize that now they've been moved off the rolls. They don't even know they're, they're not registered to vote. So there's a whole bunch of work that needs to be done to get people back out in the street and get excited about what's going on. Again, last night scared me to death, you know, from, a, from an individual that has always, always been involved in politics and that kind of thing. This scares me as an election that people aren't going to have the right to vote or understand the issues or get the true information about what the needs are in our society. You know, they're using words like defund the police. Nobody says that. They say direct some money to other things to support the police. But people only hear one side, they go out there and make some radical decisions. And I gotta tell you, I think we're in big trouble if people don't understand the issues and then get out there and vote. Mm -hmm. Let me put on my news hat for a second and tell people that October 5th is the last day you can register to vote. Early voting starts October 6th. Uh, Danielle, while we're talking current events, how much has this pandemic slowed the work of the organization to do recruitment, to do voter registration, to do communication? You know, so in any area where we slow down, I think we've picked up somewhere else. The most interesting thing about this moment is that people have fully embraced the need for us to use technology. We did have to quickly pivot, though. And so I appreciate the fact that um, I do have your members on my team who make themselves available 
We're doing much more in the way of digital communication. We're utilizing um, email and Zoom, and we've pivoted our meetings from being in person, but we're still conducting them via Zoom the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, much of the organizing that we're doing, we're just trying to do it in a safe, socially distanced manner. We did a vote by mail drive during the primary to get folks to come turn in their vote by mail applications. And I think to Stanley's point, the amount of confusion that is uh, been riddled in this election is just astounding. And you think about the number of people who traditionally don't vote by mail, who don't vote by absentee, who are learning that in Ohio, it's a multi-step process and you have to first request your actual ballot. And then when you receive the ballot, you know, take it, fill it out and turn it in. And even the steps to requesting the vote by mail application were confusing. You get a number of people who put in their birthday instead of today's date, things like that. So uh, we've been really just trying to do our best to use our brand as a way to provide good information. People are confused right now. They're hearing all the things about Russian bots and other people who are putting out misleading information. And so we know that when someone sees that NAACP seal and logo on a document, they feel a little bit more confidence that it's coming from a reputable source. So we repost and we retag things that are coming out to let people know these are the facts and this is the information that you can trust. Thank you. In a couple of minutes, I wanted to tell the audience, we'll be turning to your questions. If you have questions for the panelists, text them. The number to text is 330-541-5794. 330-541-5794, it's there on the screen for you. We'll be taking questions from you, the audience. And I've already been looking at some of the ones that are coming in. Panelists, get ready, there's some good stuff out there. Um, Reverend Miller, earlier in the month, we saw the Census Bureau declaration that Cleveland is now the poorest big city in America despite all we do. Does the same lessons from the past, how we take care of each other, what the NAACP has always been preaching, those lessons aren't being adhered to or even acknowledged anymore? Yeah, I think that uh, it's a double-edged sword. I think there's a lot of people that may wanna do the right thing, but I gotta tell you, the way our society is working today, people are very hesitant about giving up information. You know, they don't know what's gonna happen with the information that they're giving. So I think it's an education program from both from the standpoint to know where the information is going. And second, to realize that that, that money doesn't come to your community for a census, it's gonna go somewhere else. And I'm involved with East Cleveland as the chair of their distress commission out there. And that community needs resources. So we've done some things in East Cleveland to have special programs to do three things, get people to register to vote, make sure people know how to get out and vote to get their ballot, and second, sign up for the census. Those three things are so important as, as we move forward, but people have to know it, they have to understand it, and you have to convince some people that they're not gonna be trying to hunt you down, that's not why the census is wanting to know where you live. But there's a, there's a concern in our community that there's always another angle that people are taking on us. Uh, when you talk about the, the vaccine or whatever it is, people have history. They know what's happened in the past and they're very skeptical. Thank you. Clarence, we were talking image before. Are you concerned over actions that people take during protests that really don't help the image of the NAACP or now the image of Black Lives Matter and people of color in general? I'm very much concerned because uh, the people who are protesting, generally speaking, are not the ones who are rioting and looting and setting fire. Uh, I think it's obvious mm -hmm. that NAACP, Black Lives Matter, and other civil rights organizations are entirely against rooting and rioting. And, rioting. and uh, I think it's something that redounds to the disadvantage of Black Lives Matter, NAACP, and other civil rights organizations. Danielle, how do we convey this message of peace and support without coming off as looking like we're accepting limitations placed on us by outsiders? Yeah, you know, I think that the um, thing about any movement, you know, we, we look back at the civil rights movement of um, King and others. And there's always going to be an element of violence, of um, 
you know, looting and rioting and any other term that, you know, folks want to add to it. But the reality is, and this is something that I challenge um, the broader community to think about, is that's what gets reported and that's what gets talked about. Right. We talk about peaceful protests and somebody walking this really very little news coverage of that. We talk about the things that, that happen that doesn't really get people motivated. And so while we continue to um, stress nonviolence, we also recognize that many people in power do not get um, uncomfortable until something that they care about is challenged. And when their peace is challenged, you, you hear the rallying cry, no justice, no peace. When when their peace is challenged, all of a sudden people want to come to the table and they want to talk. And so I think that we have to work on um, helping the community at large. And I'm talking about, you know, our especially our white leaders understand, I think something that you asked Stanley about Cleveland being the largest poorest city, that's not just a black issue. That is an issue of leadership at every level of our community, business leaders that don't identify that their choice is not to put broadband internet service in black communities lead to us being the poorest, largest city. When you have certain zip codes that know that they're not going to have internet connection, you have certain zip codes that don't have grocery stores, you have certain zip codes that don't have high quality access to education and healthcare. That's why we're at the bottom. And that's not simply a black issue. We've got to get leaders at the table that will own that along necessary to make that improvement. Let's follow that, Reverend Miller. Um, let's just throw it out there. How much do white people need to be involved in the programs of the NAACP? I mean, racism goes both ways if you're not careful. Well, with Danielle sitting right here, the organization was started by a group of people, whites and blacks. That's how it started. And for years and years, it operated that way. And I will tell you that even today, there are friends that I have on Facebook that support everything the NAACP does. We don't get them engaged anymore. We've kind of said we can do it by ourselves too often. But we need to reach out to the folks that no matter what color they are, they support the same issues. I want to tell you, and I, I'm probably by myself on this, but I believe a lot of the vandalism that we see happening during some of these protests are paid people to do it because there's a benefit to certain people that they have chaos right now because of things going on in Washington, D.C. I really believe that there's some people behind uh, some of the violence that's happening to just pay to get some stuff done just to keep the noise going. But I think there's people in all communities that support the work of the NAACP. I got to go back in history and again and say that it was started by people of all races and we need to keep them all engaged. Did we have, did we have white faces in the rallies, in the effort back in the 60s? Yes, we did. But I don't think, uh, Reverend Miller, that we are saying uh, we can do it by ourselves. I think what has happened is that the whites who were allied with us back in the 60s and 70s have withdrawn. They have uh, moved to the suburbs and uh, they don't want to stir things up. And they just are the sleeping giant, as I mentioned before. I don't know how to uh, access that former enthusiasm. And now but you, Mr. you said a lot of people, a lot of whites are in concert with the programs of the NAACP, but where are they? They need to make known their support other than just verbalizing that they're good people. Yeah, that's, not, that's a great point, but I, if I, I put my history hat on again, I remember there was a period back in the 60s where a group of African-American organizations came out and basically put a wedge between the whites that were in the NAACP and the African-Americans. They say we didn't need them. Where was that? They walked, they walked away. You got to remember. Where was that? That wasn't in Cleveland. The, yes, it was in Cleveland. Well, yes, not while was. I was president. Okay. I didn't say it was the NAACP did it. I'm saying that organizations came in and oh. took the place of the NAACP uh, where they said they didn't need the white community to be part of the struggle that we were in. When I was down at the march, uh, that the first march that happened in Cleveland, 
there was a very diverse group of people that were out there marching, different ages. They had young kids out there. I was out there with my video camera. I saw it. When we got about the city hall, the, the complexion of the organization changed and the attitude of the people that were there changed and it became violent. So there are people out there that want to be with us and want to help, but we got to invite them and let them know that they're part of the process. Thank you. Thank you all. We're going to uh, convert here to some of the audience questions just to remind everybody who's with us today. Clarence Holmes was a retired attorney and past president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP, served during the 60s. Reverend Stanley Miller is the former executive director of the Cleveland branch. He served in the role from 2005 to 11. Danielle Sidnor is the current president of the Cleveland branch, elected in February of 2019, also founder and CEO of the We Win Strategies Group. We're going to turn to your questions now. The text number to add questions to this list, and it's a good list already, is 330-541-5794. The first question really for Mr. Holmes, you wanted to know how the NAACP in Cleveland organized for the March on Washington way back in the day. We organized uh, by including various organizations, the Urban League, the... Uh, Jewish Community Federation, uh, CORE, and other organizations, some of whose names I can't remember. And we, we uh, used buses. We uh, had about, as far as I can recall, we must have had 15 or 20 buses full of people that went on a convoy from here to Washington, D.C. And we had, I, I, I don't remember the number, but we must have had uh, 300, 400 people who went to the March on Washington. Danielle, would something like that work today? Could you, do you have all those contacts with all those groups and more, I'm sure? Could you mobilize, take a group to D.C. like that? You know, I think it's interesting in this moment that we have a, a lot of what I would say is online activism, right? You have people who feel like the their space to serve is to get their their message out that way. And it is more of a struggle today to get people um, to physically be present. I, I think that a part of it is some people believe that some of those tactics don't work anymore. You know, we go out in the streets and we march and then what happens? And so tactics sometimes have pivoted. I would say based on what we're seeing happening now, though, we do have people more energized to physically show up for activity, whether it be the march uh, or the protest, the freedom walk that we did on Juneteenth. People want to be among other people. I think that the challenge that we see in this moment while people are energized, we're also navigating a pandemic, which we haven't really discussed, and the disparities and the issues that are illuminated there. And so a lot of people are fearful to be out in person simply because of the pandemic. And so it's almost disheartening that we do have this groundswell happening at this moment in terms of civil rights and activism, but we also have to be very cautious to make sure we're protecting our health at the same time. Okay, thank you. I'm going to stay with you for this next question. Uh, it reads, a recent report by ProPublica showed that 90% of stops by the University Circle Inc. police are Black. Unfortunately, it says this is the latest in a tumultuous history that UCI has had with the Black community. What does the report about police stops show about systemic racism locally, and what role can the NAACP play in making change? Yeah, so I, it's interesting because I had one of my members that called me last night about this same article. Um, mm -hmm we have to be in a position as an association to respond to things as they happen and people anticipate and expect us to be able to react. But what I'm working to do is to get on the other side of being reactionary and be leading and coming out in front and being able to research and to know ahead of time that these things are at, at stake. I think that um, specific to that situation, we have to be hold, holding our leaders accountable. So the information is obviously out there. So that means uh, University Circle Inc. Um, that means the institutions that are around there. So that's Cleveland Clinic, University Hospital, Case Western Reserve. These institutions that put out statements about Black Lives Mattering, that put out uh, statements about um, systemic racism. I wanna hear their statements on this very topic because 
members of our community can't be over police and can't be over um, held to a different standard than any of the broader community. I think the other thing that has to happen is the dollars that are coming and flowing through those institutions that are not finding their way into programs that will help individuals sustain themselves financially. Because what we know is communities with more resources are safer than communities with more police. Yeah, I see you want to go ahead, Clarence. I had not read that article that uh, she just referred to, but it doesn't surprise me based on uh, the way police operate, whether they are private police like the police for Universal Circle or whether they are municipal police. It's the same old thing. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you guys bring this topic up because we have a councilman over here. I live on 108th Street that walks the neighborhood every day and he got stopped by the police in University Circle. So some of it is just ignorance. People don't know what's going on. We have a group over here called Neighbor to Neighbor that's meeting with Case right now to kind of bust the bubble on the Case students because Case students, when they come to campus, uh, some people in the school tell them where not to go, where not to visit, don't go under this bridge, don't go under this street. And we're going to bust that bubble and open up the community. But it also requires opening up the police that serves that community and let them know that they are part of the community. They're not just there to walk around or drive around in their cars. And uh, we have our, the police department attends all of our meetings and these issues come up at our neighbor to neighbor meeting. So that will get fixed. And Chris Ronane, the guy that runs University Circle, is very sensitive to that kind of thing. And he, he's probably gotten a phone call, and he's going to get one from me this morning, this afternoon. Danielle, you mentioned the uh, Cleveland Clinic. Danielle, you mentioned the Cleveland Clinic earlier. Um, they're a neighbor to Huff, but they're obviously also a neighbor to Fairfax. There's been a lot of talk about development going on there. Do you see this as a good sign that the neighborhood and some of those institutions are starting, are willing to work together? You know, I think that the uh, the large institutions like Cleveland Clinic and others that we could name um, have sometimes a, a disjointed relationship with the community. And I think that's partly the way that corporations are structured. They have some of their own um, ideas. They have their own initiatives that they focus on. And sometimes the community is just happens to be the place that they are. And so I think that in this moment, what we're seeing is we have to do a better job of really creating a space for community to be embedded into the work that's being done and not telling the community that these are our priorities and so this is how you fit in. Because what it leads to is this widening chasm between community and institutions. And you can't have a thriving organization if the community around you is grappling and struggling with the very health disparities that you're charged with um, solving and leading on. You look at Fairfax and you look at Huff and they have some of the highest rates of uh, obesity, of, um, of of other, you know, comorbidities that lead to issues. We look at COVID-19 where we see it disproportionately impacting Black and Latinx communities, and we have such uh, rich hospital systems in our community. So it just makes, to me, everyone has to kind of look internally and say, what have we done to deny the community the proper level of access to the resources that we have inside these institutions? Dan, go ahead. You know, in the development of the um vaccine, the same thing has happened. That is to say, the, the developers say, these are our priorities. Now you come join us. Instead of involving medical, black medical professionals at the very outset. And then they say, well, we need some more black people so we can uh, uh, test out the vaccine but it's too late yeah they come fear. late fear is there and it's historical I got a question for mr holmes that a, a listener has sent in but i also want danny to answer this afterwards as well question is mr holmes what can people learn from the ludlow experiment to maintain yeah. an integrated neighborhood wanted to know what worked and what failed and after he's done danielle could it work again clarence well the results are mixed there were people who felt that 
there should be a quota on the number of black people who moved into the neighborhood. Just happened that I was not one of them who felt that way. And there were people who felt if you're gonna have fair housing, fair housing means if a black person can buy a house, wherever it is, let them buy the house. And that was my position all along. Now, a lot of people hold up Ludlow as a uh, model for integration. And to some extent, there was integration, but it was not a complete success. I would say, I would add to um, Mr. Holmes's point, as a person who lives in Shaker Heights, you think about um, integration doesn't equal acceptance. And so while you have people living amongst each other, and so the experiment maybe afforded us more um, integration and more spaces where black and white people and uh, people of different races live amongst each other, what I think it has not uh, actually led to in many instances is actual acceptance. I just was on a call uh, earlier this week with some folks within the school system in Shaker Heights talking about how we continue to still have this issue where in the class are segregated. So yes, people live in the same neighborhood, but they in many times don't do life together. So we have to move past the surface level comfort with diversity and inclusion and start to say, what does it mean if we have interracial relationships? What does it mean if my son decides to date a white girl or a white girl decides to date a black boy? Like, what are we really at that place of real acceptance? And for many people, we're okay with diversity and inclusion as so long as it doesn't darken our own doorstep. And in liberal integrated neighborhoods, that's a lot of what it is. You have black streets, you have white streets, you have black, you know, clicks, you have white clicks. And so we live amongst each other, we pass each other and wave in a cordial way. But are we comfortable doing life together and having these kind of conversations? And what you just outlined is reflected in the composition of the school system. Black, black have black friends, whites have white friends. And there isn't a lot of friendship between races, as far as I understand. Now, my kids are no longer in the school system. So that I don't have a day-to-day -day account of what's going on. But my, my belief and understanding is that what I just outlined is still prevalent in the shake of school system. Yeah, we have black lunch tables and white lunch tables at schools all around Northeast Ohio. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, sometimes people, white people ask me, why do uh, the black kids sit together? And I said, you know, when I walked into the cafeteria, I had that same thought. Why do white people sit together? <laughs> you got it. You nailed it. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's... Next question that came in from uh, listeners here. Um, this is for Stan. How can nonprofits like the Salvation Army collaborate with the NAACP in meeting equity needs in our community? I wonder why I was asked that question. I sit on the board. The Salvation Army is an organization that has deep roots in all the communities in Cleveland. And if you know the organization itself, it has cores. And the cores are located in specific communities and they provide tremendous services. Danielle can walk over there tomorrow. I will take her over there and she will meet the major in charge and they will be hooked up. We'll get it done this week. Mm -hmm. Another question that came in, and I don't know how many of you saw last night that the terminal tower was lit up with a, I think it was a Biden-Harris sign and somebody said that steelworkers put it together. Um, the question that came in here is, what's the relationship between unions and the NAACP? Do you see... Uh, labor is just another potential ally in organizing. Yeah, and I'll let Stanley weigh I'm going to give you just a, a brief, I think, context for today is that um, the NAACP has always had a strong relationship with labor because we recognize that um, the power to organize has been one of our greatest tools. And so labor movements demonstrate that the protections that we sought as individuals many of us were able to achieve them by the method of organizing. My father was a union printer. Um, I have other family members that were, you know, in the uh, GM and Ford, you know, in, in the UAW local unions. And part of how we were able to even build middle-class access was that we could not expect 
uh, private institutions to do the things for us that we could achieve by organizing. And so uh, labor has, and I think will continue to be a strong partner with the NACP, but we still have, we have inroads to even make within labor because labor has its own set of issues as it relates to uh, inclusion and acceptance as well. But back in the sixties, we had labor participation, the labor cooperation, except the building trades, the carpenters, the pipe fitters, the metal workers, uh, the bricklayers were not allied with the civil rights movement. They had restrictive membership and black people had very difficult time trying to get into those unions. And those, and those unions made good money. Yes. And they want to keep it in the family. Wow, that's real. That's real. Got a follow-up question what we were talking about earlier. Um, Danielle, we were talking about the idea of people living together but not living together. This is a follow-up about integration versus acceptance and says, as a symbol of historical division, will the Shaker barricades finally be removed? And for people who don't know the area, Shaker and Cleveland butt up against each other around Lee Road, and there are physical concrete barriers that keep people from crossing over. When I was a member of Cleveland City Council, that was an issue then, and it still is an issue now. They have not been removed, and as far as I can tell, they have no intention of removing those uh, barriers. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because uh, I do have two sons, and my youngest son is probably the more uh, righteous indignation, uh, and he, he gets in and, and has his uh, ability to kind of convey the things that are frustrating him. And as we drive down Scottsdale and we get to either end, especially if he's a new driver and he gets frustrated about not being able to just simply turn into his neighborhood, uh, it caused him to do some more research to understand how we got to this place. And so I don't think that uh, we can take any of these issues lightly. Listen, as a homeowner in this neighborhood, I understand what it would mean if that was a straight through street where you didn't have any way of stopping folks from kind of cutting through and how much more traffic could come. But I think there are different solutions that could be in place besides having literal strict concrete barriers that keep you from coming through, put speed bumps. There's a way to manage traffic is the concern, right? And, and if we can, if we shrouded that as the cover for why we do it, then there are other tactics that we could use. But wanting to keep people out of your neighborhood is, is what it ultimately demonstrates. And so I hope that our city leaders are watching, our council people, our mayor, and really take into to account the fact that we don't have barriers to separate us from Beachwood. We don't have barriers to separate us from Cleveland Heights or University Heights. How is it and why is it that we only have barriers to separate us from the city of Cleveland? And they got ownership for that. That tells us that there's a racial component in uh, erecting those barriers. Oh, clearly. Mm -hmm. That may be the primarily, primary uh, motivation. Wow. I can remember when I was a little kid, I had two aunts who lived one block apart, but one was on the Shaker side, one was on the Cleveland side. And even as a child, I'm like, what is that about? Why can't I walk there? And here we are, 40, 50 years later, still seeing those same barriers. Yeah. Yeah. So another question came in just now. Uh, last night during the debate, President Trump failed to denounce white supremacists and then seemed to empower the Proud Boys. Can the panelists talk about this and what it means as the nation is having a national reckoning with racial injustice? And I'm sure you all want to weigh in. I'll just pick on you first, Dan. Oh, don't come to me first. I said it before. <laughs> My phone was ringing off the hook when that comment was made. I mean, we have a person in a very, very high office that's a racist. And the problem is that he has a group of people that support him that he wants to keep in his camp. That is it. And there's no way you can sugarcoat it. There's no way you can sugarcoat it. I, it's just something that we have to deal with. And, 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 and I say make a change. You just have to make a change. For people who weren't watching last night and don't know the name, the Proud Boys, it's a neo-fascist group that um, they've been in Portland. They've been around many areas. There is actually a chapter here in Cleveland, I do believe, 
and the president didn't empower them by name, but he said the phrase stand back and stand by. Stand and people by. are saying, what does that mean? Clarence, had to upset you. I don't have sufficient command of the English language to adequately express the depth and disgust and disdain that and repulsion that I have for that individual who is depraved, degenerate, racist, a pathological liar, and should be voted out in November. That was clear. I would add to that, I think it's uh, opportunistic. You know, at this moment, um, what we see out of the White House is the ability or the desire to pivot to uh, whatever they believe, whatever he believes, is going to get the most salacious headlines. As someone who is off on business and looks at marketing and looks at sound bites, he talks and speaks in sound bites and he says things that will um, get people to repeat and say over and over and over again. And I think in this moment, we have to also try and cancel out the noise and be able to go back in our communities and help them understand why it's so important that we don't get sidetracked by the uh, crazy things that he continues to say and will continue to say leading up to election day and even after. I think Ian Holmes started off by talking about the fact that you have somebody in the White House who is saying that he may not concede power. He may not concede the office um, when the when the election is finalized. And so we have got to make sure we stay organized and that we have people doing access to high quality information because last night was an example that they're going to try and use confusion to keep people from exercising the right to vote. And if the vote goes against him, don't be surprised if he doesn't call out the uh what what were the boys? Uh, proud boys. Proud boys. The what boys? Proud. Proud boys. Boys. The bicyclists. I mean, not bicyclists. Motorcyclists. Mm -hmm. The FBI. Maybe even the army, because he believes somehow that he has a divine right to be president of the United States. And he is going to do everything in his power, including the FBI, the Justice Department, and whatever, the Homeland Security, and whatever other organizations he can muster to keep him in power. It's somebody who's uh, hearing our conversation really is a call to action, Danielle, asking, what are the three actions you need this audience to take, whether it's get out the vote, fill out the census, something else? How can we, in capital letters, get active and help? So the NAACP has a, a pledge locally going on right now that's called I Got Five on it, something that we think is pretty simple and easy to repeat that everybody can participate in. You can go to our website, clevelandnaacp.org, and sign up for the I Got Five on it challenge. And, you know, the census now, they're – Saying the deadline is going to be October the 5th, so we still have time to do that. We're encouraging you when you take the pledge to pledge to register to vote if you're not already registered, to pledge to make your voting plan and get out to vote, and then also to complete your census. But not stop there, but talk to five more people about it. Give us five phone numbers that we can text to remind to do these things. What we recognize, again, someone asked Mr. Holmes this question earlier, how do we organize for the March on Washington before all this technology? We talked to people in our community. If we could just get back to having conversations instead of just passing by each other in the car and passing by each other on the street, ask your neighbor, ask your cousin, ask your mom, ask your dad, are they registered to vote? Do they have their and The second thing I would say um, is when we think about voter mobilization, there are going to be many barriers when it comes time to election day to early vote. So think about ways that you as a, a just a regular citizen can volunteer to assist people in your community. You have seniors that are going to struggle with transportation that may want to get out to exercise the right to vote. And the final thing is thinking about 18 year olds, newly turned 18 year olds and those that will be 18 by election day. A lot of people don't realize that their 17 year old 
who's going to be 18 by November the 3rd, can register to vote now. So let's get the next generation of people involved and engaged today because the decisions out of the White House are going to impact them. So they should be deciding on who's going to make those decisions. Right. They got 40, 50 years left on the planet. Maybe we don't. So although I'm crossing my fingers. Okay. You mentioned the idea of getting together. A question came in with many black churches not physically meeting right now. What role can clergy play in community organizing and the current movement for equity and justice? Is that to me? Sure. You want it to be? No, I, I would take just it. say to have to take the first step. Danielle talked about doing something. Yes, you got to do something. There's no reason a church can't meet with the church down the street and say, mm -hmm. let's have a meal together. Can't we worship together? There's something that a church can do with another church that's in the neighborhood to move this ball along. And we just don't do it. We get so comfortable where we are right now that we won't step out to get to know the best of one another. And I feel very strongly about it only because, again, I have a church down in, in Oberlin. There's two churches, two United Methodist churches in panel, the white United Methodist Church and the black United Methodist Church. And we're what, four blocks apart? Unacceptable, unacceptable. And those churches need to do something to come together even if it's periodically, just to get to know the best of one another. And we're doing it in Oberlin, but other communities can do the same thing. They can. You're talking about pre-COVID. What about right now? Is there something the churches can be doing right now when we're only meeting in groups of 25 or less? If they're Zooming, you could give the other church your Zoom address and they can come to the service. Yeah, I think what we're doing with, I mean, some of the faith community, again, like that vote by mail drive that we did, we did it at University Circle United Methodist Church. We stayed outside. We stayed socially distanced. We encouraged uh, people to just drive up. They could fill out their voter registration form in their car. They could fill out the vote by mail application in their car. Churches have physical buildings that people know, and so that's a great way for them to participate in this moment. There's still things that we can do with physical distancing that are in person that allow people to engage. The other thing is that there are a lot of families that are in need right now because of COVID. People have lost jobs, but you have more churches. I was on a call with um, Pastor uh, Jenkins, and she was talking about the fact that um, you have they, the amount of food that they're giving out through their food pantry has you know quadrupled during the pandemic. And so the faith community is still engaging and connecting with people one-on-one. -on -one. I think what they can do in this moment is just add on to what they're voting, make sure they are talking about the census, and then you know working with organizations like the NAACP to try and connect people with other resources that are available in the community. Excellent. And if the Board of Elections decide to uh, place drop boxes throughout the county, the churches would be a good place to have boxes because many church members vote and they know where the church is. And uh, I hope that, I think there's a lawsuit still pending, but still pending, yeah. it is. Right. that the outcome is such that many boxes, many drop boxes are placed throughout the county rather than one box per county. That's insane. With more than a million people here, it certainly is. Well, that is about our time for the day. I want to thank each of you for joining us for the forum. We've been discussing Cleveland race relations from the civil rights movement to Black Lives Matter. Joining us were Clarence Holmes, a retired attorney, past president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP, the Reverend Stanley Miller, former executive director of the Cleveland branch. He's now pastor at Rust United Methodist, as he mentioned, and Daniel Sidner is the current president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP, founder and CEO of the We Win Strategies Group. Thank you all for a great and glorious conversation. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Be well. You. Today's forum was sponsored by AARP of Cleveland. We are deeply grateful for their support for this important conversation. Additionally, we offer gratitude to Cleveland Votes and University Circle, Inc., community partners on today's forum. This forum also is a part of One Community Reads, Racial Equity in America. That's happening now through December 2020. The nine library systems in Cuyahoga County along with the City Club and other partners, have curated a series of online events with writers, speakers, and activists to help residents of Cuyahoga County learn about racial justice issues from a variety of sources. Visit onecommunityreads.org for more info 
and to share your thoughts and your reactions and your ideas for how to advance racial equity in Cuyahoga County. All of the City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gund Foundation, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous sponsors and members and donors listed on the website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting their work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I'm Rick Jackson of IdeaStream. Thank you for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.